because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Sitting in for Alex Epstein today, I'm Dom Watkins, Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress, and with me is my co-host, Stefan Henna, Head of Research for CIP. Hey, Stefan, how's it going? Hey, Don, I'm good. So you're probably asking yourself if you're a regular listener to Power Hour, hey, did you guys stage a coup and take over the podcast? Um, but the truth is that Alex has been busy with a lot of uh, speaking and has had to choose between Power Hour and squeezing in work on the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0. And as someone who's seen some of the work he's doing on the new book, take my word for it. I'm really happy he's focused on it because I I think it's going to be incredible. I think he's taking one of the most uh, persuasive books I've ever read and making it 10 times better. So uh, look forward to that, but we'll also look forward to his return. I am definitely not promising it next week, but let's just say I'm, I'm highly confident that uh, he will be here next week. Last week, I watched the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, which uh, I think a lot of other people were watching and talking about as well. And I think it has some interesting lessons on the issue of energy. But I just want to start with saying that I think its core theme was profoundly true. And then the quality of the storytelling in displaying that theme was incredibly good. I mean, I went through it in two days and I would have gone through it one day, except for I value my sleep. But the basic theme is really the impact of dishonesty on society. And like if you're if you're concerned with human flourishing, then you're deeply concerned with the truth because you want to know the full impact of your different uh, potential choices on human life. But if you're looking at a dictatorship, and of course Chernobyl was a nuclear accident that took place in the Soviet Union in the 80s, dictatorships are not geared towards human flourishing, to say the least. That what they're what they're really centered on is they're geared towards power and prestige of the rulers. And when that is your orientation, you're not thinking, well, what's the best way to achieve power and prestige? It's the facts and the truth are actually threats to this false image of superiority and the desire to rule people that you have. And so in, in the context of this story, there's this fundamental lie that the Soviets are advanced technologically, but the truth is that they're incredibly primitive. And so they have these nuclear reactors that are so poorly designed that even they know, even though they, but will not, uh, communicate to the people in the industry and to other scientists that these nuclear reactors are capable of a massive disaster. And, you know, they're just covering that up because that would harm, the truth would harm Soviet prestige. And then in order to protect that lie, you layer upon, you add layer upon layer of further lies, such as not admitting the extent of the damage or danger once that disaster actually happens. And so, Here's just a few quotes that are expressing the theme that I mean are just as standalone quotes are awesome. So uh, the truth doesn't care about our needs or wants. It doesn't care about our governments, our ideologies, our religions. It will lie in wait for all time. And this at last is the gift of Chernobyl. Then another one is when 
the truth offends, we lie and lie until it, we can no longer remember it is even there, but it is still there. And then there's uh, where I once would fear the cost of truth. Now I only asked, what is the cost of lies? And then a line that I really wish I had written because it's just perfect um, and profound. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. So I think like as a movie and a movie expressing a deep um, moral lesson, it was excellent. But there's also the issue that uh, the reaction to the to the to the series has involved quite a bit of fear, evoking fear of nuclear and of radiation in particular, and in reinforcing this fear of nuclear power, which um, to the credit of the filmmakers, at least by their own statements, you know, that was not their goal. And if you watch the movie, it's very clear that the, the kind of disaster that happened at Chernobyl was based on the design design flaws that just do like, it could not happen in the West, let alone like a modern nuclear power plant. Um, but I mean, as they display it in the movie, one thing that it, it comes across is that, you know, radiation is, I mean, it's in effect, like if you took like, you know, supercharged, superpowered Ebola and just were shooting it through the air, like it is, you know, it spreads from person to person. It like is going to, you know, melt your face if you live miles away. Um, it's portrayed as incredibly, incredibly scary. And the reaction from a lot of people is, oh my gosh, there's a nuclear power plant near me. We have to, you know, put an end to this. This is really scary. Um, Stefan, wh why don't you share sort of your take on the, the facts about nuclear and radiation versus the kind of mythology that unfortunately Chernobyl helps propagate? Yeah, so I haven't seen the, the series myself, uh, so I don't... I cannot comment on the exact details, but from what I've heard is that sort of people were sort of uh, expecting that people who get radiation poisoning on site in Chernobyl were essentially dead and the clock was ticking for them. So and that reminds me of, uh, of a little anecdote that I listened to on a different podcast some years ago, and it was about scientists and engineers working at Oak Ridge Laboratory, like in the 1950s and 60s, and sort of developing uh, early laboratory versions of nuclear reactors. And so they would then have sort of accidents and, you know, spill themselves with contaminated water and so on, something that would never happen in a commercial reactor. These are like, you know, frontier scientists experimenting with something, you know, dangerous like Marie Curie, uh, you know, with their uh, radioactive chemicals and, and you know, tasting it and something like that. And so, and these people would then radiation poisoning themselves, losing hair and, and you know, getting red uh, colored skin and so on. And all of them went on to have pretty long, healthy lives after that. So they recovered from that. And so even in an event like, uh, you know, a serious accident where people really get get hurt with, with radiation and have immediate uh, effects and this uh, acute radiation syndrome is, is really serious and can kill you if you get too much radiation at one single time. But if you recover from it, there's a good chance that you will, 
you know, survive and not even have uh, necessarily long-term consequences. So it's, of course, in the movies, it's uh, dramatized, you know, pushed over the edge in some cases. But there's, radiation has some advantages over other uh, potential threats, I think. So when you think about uh, toxins, you know, in the air or in the water or something, you, you never know where they are. It's very difficult to test for them to be aware of where's a hotspot, where it's actually dangerous. So if you think about an incident like Fukushima, at Fukushima, you know, people were, were very aware of, you know, where the radiation was going, where hotspots built up and so on. And you could avoid uh, something like, oh, this is getting close to a dangerous level that we want to avoid. So they just, you know, had this hotspot marked and didn't let anyone get, go near that. On the other hand, what's a tsunami in Fukushima who caused this nuclear accident washed out some chemical plant, maybe, a, I don't know, a solar manufacturing plant, and all these chemicals that might be uh, carcinogens or, or you know, have a, have a different toxic effect. Nobody cares about, like, who got exposed to what, where's the hotspot of that material, right? So, and, and this in many cases can be much more dangerous, but radiation you can actually measure and avoid. And I think part of part of the, the tragic thing that happened at Chernobyl, besides, you know, the reactor design that was not uh, appreciating individual human life, you know, just like the Soviet system didn't, and um, uh, the bad management afterwards, a big part of that was just that the cover-up made things worse than they needed to be. So one of the big consequences of that was uh, thyroid cancers in the general population from from iod- uh, radiating iodine that they ingested. And this is a cancer that you can, you know, survive. It's I think it has something about a 1% um, uh, death rate if uh, properly screened for and so on. And so the Soviets didn't just screw up the nuclear reactor. The cover-up actually... It's not just the lie that they were not technologically superior. It's just this cover-up risked more human lives than it needed to. And this is, you know, this is a, this is a, a system failure. It's not so much that nu- the nuclear accident in itself was actually uh, sort of more benign than something else going wrong could have been. It, you know, so I think that the death toll recently... From from the UN body estimating that I think they, they uh, systematically put that downwards uh, from something like over twenty thousand to then four thousand and now they have like less than a hundred direct death and then maybe something like five thousand thyroid cancer cases and uh, it's possible that very few other effects, if any, happened other than psychological effects and, of course, economic effects long-term. So ra- radiation and nuclear technology in itself, like even in a disaster where many things go wrong and many things were badly designed, the nuclear accident is actually one of the more benign things to happen. Yeah, so it's just the this whole focus on the truth, which is what I like about the documentary. Um, like, as I mentioned, it's, the, the truth is valuable if you actually have a goal that depends upon the truth. That is, if you care about human life, then you need to know how do you sustain yourself in reality. And that includes knowing what's true about different 
energy sources. And that means looking at the positives and the negatives and comparing them to the alternatives. So, I mean, one of the things like even in this worst, worst case of a nuclear, uh, you know, disaster, people still had time to react and the Soviets as inept as they were, uh, had the time to try to take mitigating actions. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it was very different than if a dam breaks or if, uh, you know, a, a, a refinery explodes or something like that. And so you just, the, it, it really should strengthen, I think the case for nuclear, but part of what we, we've stressed at the center for industrial progress is the way in which the greens are not focused on human flourishing. That is that their goal is essentially negative. It's essentially opposing human flourishing. It's not for anything positive. And if your goal is negative, if your goal is to tear something down, if your goal is to oppose industry and capitalism and human life, then you're actually not, you have no motive to be interested in the truth because you can throw out things in a biased and sloppy way in order to serve that goal because you're not actually trying to build something. You're not trying to achieve something positive, in which case uh, the the lesson of the show Chernobyl, uh, which is a true lesson, is that truth matters. Stefan, what's your story? Uh, I have a German nuclear story. And uh, so this is this comes in f with a background that as most listeners to our podcast should know that in 2022 in Germany, nu the remaining nuclear reactors will be phased out completely and it will be uh, the sale of electricity from nuclear reactors will be banned by that time. And uh, so Berlin-based newspaper Der Tagesspiegel now has asked uh, some major system operators, namely E.ON, RWE and ENBW, about a prospect to prolong their uh, remaining nuclear reactor lifetimes. And uh, so this comes as fears increase about major capacity shortages in the German economy, you know, particularly from the business world, but also some uh, sort of center-right uh, political actors. And so all three of them said that, you know, a change of plans is not on the table for them. They don't want to operate these reactors any longer. And that, that could be surprising because all of these reactors are essentially paid for. The financial amortization has been completed and they should, you know, the longer you operate them, the bigger your profits become because you only have to uh, recoup the operational cost of that, right? But uh, they are not interested in that. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that the companies fear the political environment. So uh, the Fukushima incident in 2011 was a very useful prelude for the long-term goal uh, of the Greens in all kinds of parties in Germany. It's not just the Green Party, it's all kinds. Merkel's uh, quote-unquote conservative uh, Christian Democrats and you know the socialists and, and all parties are essentially agreeing on that. And so fighting against that phase-out plan would bear the long-term risk of retribution by these political forces and also would risk, you know, falling out of favor in public opinion. And even if the profitability of the reactors would look good, like for the next five or 10 years, 
you might say, okay, so the, there will be no major political shift in our expectations. And, you know, we could operate them at, late, at least for another decade and make some good money. But you don't know that. It, I mean, it's the Merkel government pushed for this phase out of nuclear uh, in an accelerated way. way. And uh, so any change of plans, any additional like Fukushima incident, any any news item could change the policy immediately. And the, the nuclear industry in Germany and to some extent also in America is so dependent on, you know, politics and, and governments and the bureaucracy that this would put any business plan in jeopardy. And so the major German power plant operators have aligned uh, their own strategic plans with uh, what's called the energy transition, the uh, Energiewende in, in German language, which means that uh, the focus should be on renewables, particularly solar and wind, and also decrease in um, energy use per capita to a significant degree and, you know, the standard buzzwords of energy efficiency, saving uh, energy instead of having to produce it and so on. And so this is the, the politics are so pervasive in, in this industry that I, I was reminded of a, a part of the novel Atlas Shrugged, which, which featured Hank Reardon, this industrial uh, sort of hero, the successful businessman and industrialist who just invented this new super alloy, uh, Reardon steel, uh, or Reardon metal. And he had a friend or an associate named Paul Larkin very early in the novel. And he came over to his house and, you know, after some, some conversation, he asked, hey, Hank, how is your man in Washington? Because he was a very timid guy, but he's, he, was, he realized how important it is in this uh, setting in Atlas Rock, in the political setting, to you know, have someone in Washington to have political support for what you're doing to sway public opinion and so on. And this is this is very much what the nuclear industry in Germany, I think, feels. It's just you can't just vote your pocketbook. You can't just do what would make economic sense, and you can't do what would make industrial sense for the entire economy, even if they were sort of selflessly uh, serving the German industry and just say, hey, we want cheap power for you and, you know, we will we will cut our rates and so on. And nuclear is a way to go. They can't do that because of the strong public opinion against it and the political forces working against that. So it's it's a really, really horrible situation. I think it's it's emblematic of how, you know, like nuclear industry and banking, but maybe nuclear industry is even worse in how the political pressure is applied to them and, and how much of their decisions is taken out of their own hands. And so I call this a quote-unquote private sector because, uh, you know, nominally uh, the, the capital might be in the hands of private individuals or at least publicly traded in some form or the other, but the entire regulatory body uh, Everything has to be permitted. Uh, there's a sort of public license that you need to operate. You have to look uh, at public opinion about what you are doing before you can be a producer and creator. And that's, I, th I think it's, it's really horrible. And the, it shows just that the nuclear industry is really the worst hit by this kind of development. It's really, and I, I fear that 
to some degree, that's already in America. And that's where much of the innovation came from, from over the decades in nuclear. And if that would stop, that would be really, really horrible because we need in the future, in my personal belief, also in Germany, although the government won't acknowledge that, we will need much more energy and much more energy per capita. And this has to come from somewhere. So they, the German government wants to phase out nuclear first, then coal in the late 1930s, uh, and then, yeah, what's left? Solar and wind and some batteries. Maybe, maybe we'll gobble up the entire like lithium and cobalt production of the planet, and this won't suffice for our energy needs. I think it's really uh, relevant that you mentioned Atlas Shrugged. It was a different aspect of Atlas Shrugged that came to mind for me, which is one of the points in the novel is this idea that the power seekers who go around restricting the freedom of producers, they actually don't have a clue about how their plans are going to work. It's like they, they have no clue. Well, how's the economy going to function if we make life impossible for the people who have who are able to produce wealth, technology, and prosperity, they just assume that, well, the producers will keep on going, like they'll, they'll make our plan work somehow. And I think that's exactly what's going on in Germany and in the US is that you have these people shutting down fossil fuels and nuclear, and they have no clue about how they're actually going to maintain reliable electricity. They're just counting on someone to magically figure it out, like magically you will make batteries and solar and wind work. You'll make them affordable. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll get lucky and, and someone will figure it out. But that's literally what under these circumstances will determine the future uh, of Germany, assuming they don't change course uh, while there's time to change course and assuming that we don't change course. I mean, it's, it's the equivalent of you said, all right, in five years, we're going to ban antibiotics. And like, maybe you get lucky and somebody invents alternative, but do you really want to bet your life on that happening? And yet that's really, I think what's going on here is betting your life that somebody else will be able to figure out how to keep your plan from causing a disaster. And then if they do come up with a solution, you have to worry about, well, is that going to be banned too? Because remember, if you actually did have scalable solar, wind, and batteries, the Greens would be the first people to actually oppose it. And they would point out what we've pointed out that actually you know, the kind of mining involved in batteries and disposal, the kind of land use that would be involved in scaling uh, wind and solar, like these are, it, these are major impacts and their goal is to minimize impacts. And the only way you can minimize impacts is to minimize human life. My next story goes to uh, a, a, actually a couple stories having to do with former New York uh, Mayor Bloomberg. And one of the perennial complaints of the left is that the rich have too much power and influence. And just, you know, as one of a trillion examples, it when it was revealed that the billionaire investor Peter Thiel had funded Hawk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker a few years ago, there was this huge outcry. It was like, how can we let one person control the, you know, machinery of government and justice just because they have money. But when it comes to climate, they're actually cheering on something, this same phenomenon um, from Bloomberg. So in this case, uh, Bloomberg just pledged $500 million to create a beyond carbon campaign to close every coal-fired power plant in the United States and halt the growth of natural gas. And 
the idea is that, well, we can't do very much to stop climate at a federal level. Um, and so we're going to, uh, Bloomberg wants to focus on influencing state and local governments, which by the way, I mean, having outsiders with a lot of money come in and try to influence local politics, that is exactly the sort of thing industries criticized for doing when it spends money to defend its right to produce. Um, but notice the context here. It's like, well, why do they need Bloomberg's money in order to fight these state and local bat battles? Like, why haven't the people just used their ability to vote to get these policies? And that's because they have voted on these policies. And even in places like Washington State, they've rejected restrictive climate policies. So this is a billionaire using $500 million to override uh, and try to counter the choices of individuals, you know, voting democratically. And now I actually have no objection to wealthy people using their wealth to promote their ideas. I mean, it's one of the reasons it's desirable to earn wealth is that you can do a better job of promoting the idea and ideas and causes that you care about. What I object to is using wealth to spread ideas that would make millions of other Americans poor. And I mean, it, I think it also exposes the fact that the green movement is, is fundamentally authoritarian. It is not, as they portray themselves, a democratic movement. That is just a convenient thing to wield whenever it is convenient and a convenient thing to override whenever it's convenient. Um, but there's another part of this story that I find even more troubling or another example of Bloomberg's manipulating uh, of the world to advance his agenda, which is... Um, he, a, 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 he's basically paying these salaries and benefits for state attorneys general staff based on their support for, quote, advancing progressive clean energy, climate change, and environmental legal positions. And this is including things like these climate lawsuits going after companies like ExxonMobil. And basically the idea is that like the government is getting employees bought and paid for by a wealthy patron on the basis of his partisan policy preferences. I mean, it's it would be like if the Koch brothers said, all right, we're going to pay for EPA staff who agree with us that we need to roll back regulations. This is, is it's not exactly something that would be tolerated uh, by anyone, let alone um, the, the, the people who are cheering on Bloomberg. And, you know, unlike using your wealth to promote your ideas, I mean, this is in another category altogether. You know, this is not like lobbying. I mean, this is closer to bribery. It is paying money to install people who have the ability to act in the name, act in the name of the government, including by going after uh, the, the energy companies who make our lives possible. Any thoughts, Devin? Yeah, I, I think just in the sort of Republican governance model, it's um, it's of course not a democracy. It's just that there are so many obstacles to making drastic changes. And I think um, one of the ways this is being done is the sort of incrementalism, where you just you know push back on you know the local level, the state level, the federal level. And if the legislation doesn't pass, you go to the courts and try your luck there. Maybe you get a good court district that's in your favor politically, something like that. And so the Republican system is quite robust in, in doing something against it. But if, the, if this onslaught is going on over and over again and, and another lawsuit and, and a different uh, angle of attack, then at some point something will break in and you will get more into the direction the Greens want you to go. Uh, 
And so what people like Bloomberg and, and others are doing, of course, is they are funding this machinery that creates one attack after the other, and they are not they're not necessarily um, directly influencing that or, or make a decisive victory, but they are sort of um, increasing the chance of something happening in their favor. And of course, uh, the fundamental thing is, is uh, the moral approach, like what would be the right thing to do. And, and I think it's public opinion is very relevant and uh, we need to do a lot on, on, education and and convincing the general public to prevent that from happening because there's in all kinds of fields there there's always this constant attack of of people who are anti-human flourishing even if they are not openly so they are sort of working against that what's your next story stefan so in Glacier National Park, uh, there has been something going on recently. Officials have uh, removed signs and other features uh, claiming that, according to climate projections, all the glaciers at Glacier National Park would be gone by 2020 or, in some cases, 2030. Um, So... The development, so these projections have been based from uh, on climate modeling uh, in the early 2000s for this for this locality in the Rocky Mountains, uh, where there was sort of a rapid melting period for some years, but now since about 10 years ago, uh, the most prominent glaciers have been growing and some significantly so. So this will not actually happen with the deadline 2020 and, and unlikely with 2030. So the overall context, of course, is, yeah, global warming, uh, retreating glaciers globally, uh, and then, of course, Glacier National Park will be the monument without any glaciers in it. That's that's at least the narrative. And the uh, United States Geological Survey uh, has said that, yeah, they expect that the glaciers will be gone probably somewhere between 2030 and 2080 in that area. Um, But of course, I noticed this pattern um, where you get a lot of coverage when people make big pronouncements and and putting signs there saying, yeah, you know, just a couple of years and all these glaciers at Glacier National Park will be gone. And then when they remove the signs, because this prediction didn't happen, uh, the media is just, you know, silent, not reporting it that much. It's not that big a deal. It's just, you know, a failed prediction. Uh, But this is sort of a government messaging disaster because uh, so these uh, like Glacier National Park museums and so on, they they are supposed to be educational. So you send off your high school kids there, you know, to to watch this uh, natural beauty and, and what happens to it and, you know, the educational part will then tell them, oh, we are actually destroying that right now with human CO2 emissions. And so this, of course, was jumped on. And then later, it's never retracted. And this pattern we've seen in climate change, uh, definitely, but also in other areas. So some short-term trend is uh, sort of projected into the future. And then we say, oh, yeah, we will have like crazy sea level rise in Miami, or we will have, you know, crazy storms and tornadoes. Uh, Recently, uh, some Democratic uh, presidential candidates uh, try to jump on the tornado search 
in, in recent weeks. And of course, then uh, some of the experts had to, had to paddle this back a little and said, well, we don't really have a connection. The science doesn't say that tornadoes will get stronger or more intense. We can't connect that to, to global warming, but maybe it is uh, connected. We, don't, we just don't know. It just means we don't know it. So it's a, it's a one it's a it's a one-sided narrative all the time and we've seen this before uh, particularly with uh, something like the population bomb very popular in the 1970s and people like paul ehrlich um, proclaimed that oh yeah there we will see in 10 years you know starting in the 1970s uh major famines because people cannot feed themselves uh and india places like india people People will starve to death and, and so on. And of course, the exact opposite happened. And Paul Ehrlich never uh, apologized to my knowledge and never checked that back. He's now claiming, oh, we just postponed the doomsday a little bit. We will, get, we will see that in, a, in the next couple of decades. Uh, and he doesn't ever acknowledge that his projection was based on a total misunderstanding of resources and, and how things work in and then, of course, the agricultural revolution came with better fertilizers and better pesticides and better understanding of genetic patterns in crop plants and so on. So we, it's just that it's he wasn't off by a bit. He just predicted the exact opposite of what happened. And something similar happened in general resource depletion scares, you know, the Club of Rome made predictions and actually had mathematical models to predict about what time we would run out of, you know, tin and copper and oil and so on. And so, again, the exact opposite happened, of course, and that was fundamentally based on their bad methodology in predicting the future. And this is never, never, ever acknowledged. And these uh, failures are often never known to the public. So I, I'm seeing today politicians proclaiming, yeah, the Club of Rome was fundamentally right. They, you know, they couldn't really know what we know today, but we know in a couple of decades we will run out of, of certain commodities, right? And so this is, I find this really, it's to many people it's amusing. I find this horrific because with so many historical facts and events, we don't recollect. So we, we should, we should primarily, I think, focus on highlighting what experts predicted 30 years ago and what actually happened. Instead of just saying, "Oh, what what are the best experts saying now about the pattern in thirty years?" Because we should be very skeptical, especially in complex uh, scenarios, what some academic is predicting, or even even some class of experts. So, in, in global warming, climate change, it's really a class of experts, and they all have very similar incentives. They all have the incentive to, uh, "Oh, yeah, Bill McKim is exaggerating that." But we won't stop him from doing that. It's it's really good if people are scared of you know climate catastrophe in the future. You know we think climate change catastrophe will happen not in the way Bill McKibben portrays it or when he claims you can feel it right now. Maybe that's wrong, but yeah, it's overall it's really good. It's gives certainly uh, more money to climate change science or academia, whatever you want to call it, and so it will advance our political cause as well. So we have to be very aware that even when a majority of experts says something or agrees with something or has a certain narrative, 
we need to remain skeptical about things. So what, what are the incentives? What do we really know? Can they explain how they know things and with what degree of certainty they know things and so on? And this is just a little story to highlight that. So the, the Glacier National Park staff is admitting that their narrative about uh, the glaciers was absolutely bogus and nonsense. And uh, so they are at least doing it by action, sadly not by uh, words in the headlines. I think that a, a lot of what you're seeing here is, I mean, somebody needs to create a resource with every environmentalist prediction. And I mean, they should just play 24-7 on a billboard in Times Square. Because um, I do think they're important and revealing, and not just in a gotcha way, um, but the revealing of just the nature of the movement. That is, this is not fundamentally a scientific movement. A scientific movement is you have a theory that generates predictions that are used to test your theory. And if your predictions don't work out, then you have to revisit your theory and think there's something wrong with it, then I'm getting wrong predictions. But if you contrast that with like, it's not just science that makes predictions, like every apocalyptic religion will say like, look, the end of the world is coming because we have sinned against God. And then when the apocalypse doesn't arrive, they just move the date forward, but they're, they're not changing their basic framework. And what's going on here is that you have a in a, not a scientific uh, theory fundamentally, but you have an ideological framework. It's an ideological framework that says that you know the Earth is stable, safe, and suffi sufficient, and that the 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 human sin is to have an impact on it, to make a footprint. And human virtue comes from just avoiding messing it up, not making impacts, and then the earth will take care of us. But if we do continue to make footprints, if we do continue to have an impact, it will punish us. And that's what's generating all of these doom and gloom predictions. And uh, it's also why those predictions have turned out in uh, case after case to be false, because that is the wrong model. That is the wrong framework for actually thinking about um human beings and the relationship to nature. It's that we have, we are improvers of nature, which is naturally unstable, unsafe, and deficient. And the, the, but what happens is that the culture at large shares the framework, including like genuine scientists who work on these issues, even if, you know, it's that they share this fundamental framework as does the media and does the public. And it's your framework that causes you to find these kind of predictions plausible. Whereas if you take something that has a much better track record for predictions, which is the, the uh, of like, what is, you know, the next 20 years going to look like in terms of our demand for energy. And you have most reputable or every reputable um, organization saying that, look, we're just going to see an increasing demand for oil and gas for at least the next 20 years. And then, they're hounded and uh, whatnot, but like that. It, traditionally, we have underpredicted the growth of oil and gas, but that does not fit in the framework. The framework, and and so therefore, those are regarded as uh, that those predictions don't resonate with people. And so, you can't go from any one prediction to saying, well, every prediction that they make, including about climate, is going to be false. But it's important to have in mind, like, what is their standing? Their standing is not as like honest scientists who are trying to get at the truth, the people making these apocalyptic predictions um, are ideologues who are using that, as you mentioned, in order to push action in favor of their agenda. And that is 
that means that they have a very, very high threshold or high burden of proof in order to be taken seriously. And part of overcoming that burden of proof is starting by admitting and apologizing for their false predictions. So my next story is uh, that it has to do with um, China's response to the trade war that has kind of been ramping up between China and the US. And China is the world's biggest producer of rare earth metals. And it supplies about 80% of our imports of those metals, which among other things are used in solar, wind, and battery technologies. And now apparently the Chinese are considering cutting exports, or at least threatening to, uh, of rare earth metals to the US in order to improve their bargaining position in upcoming trade talks. And the the kind of larger concern that some people have raised is like, look, if we are dependent on wind, solar, and batteries as the green movement wants, then we're just going to become more dependent on countries like China and less we'll have less fuel security at home or less energy security at home. And I mean, there's some legitimacy to that in the sense that all else being equal, it's good that we are the world leader in the oil and gas that actually powers our civilization. Um, But I think it's important to keep in mind that, I mean, these concerns are actually overblown that China has some leverage here, but not a ton because the, the, it's not that they're the only possible providers of rare earth metals. And in fact, they restricted exporting of rare earth materials um, back in 2010. And what do you know, the price rose and then you saw a bunch of capital invested in mines in other parts of the world. And so China's share basically dropped from about 100% to around 70% of, you know, supplying the world with these metals today. Um, But I do like the fact that people are, that there's greater attention being brought to rare earth metals and their role in um, the, you know, technologies that greens are promoting because the green movement does not want to talk about that. Like their whole the whole game is portraying their sources as clean and fossil fuels as dirty. But I mean, the whole reason that we refer to rare earth metals as rare is not because they're actually rare, but they're just very difficult to mine. And part of the difficulty involves just a lot of pollution and expense. And so like you could do it in the US, but here you would actually have to obey environmental laws and not hire children and, you know, to do the labor. And, um, and so like, the that's what would make it very very expensive to do here even more expensive than it is today which is you know why you have things like batteries that are completely unsuitable for you know storing energy to power an entire society um and so what's basically happened is that you know wind and solar are built by outsourcing this mining to poor countries with poor labor protections and poor environmental practices and I think that that is like, that needs to be well known. And we need to get away from this completely false narrative that somehow it's like, oh, these are clean. And, you know, fossil fuels produced in a country with, you know, some of the best uh, environmental practices on earth are somehow dirty. Stefan, any thoughts? Yeah. So uh, one big reason to be uh, opposed to all kinds of tra- trade wars and trade restrictions you know, besides, you know, against actual enemies of your country, is uh, that all of these processes are quite complex. 
So it's portrayed as, yeah, wind and solar, you know, we take the sun and the wind, but you don't take the sun and the wind. The sun and the wind are, of course, the, the primary energy source, but you are taking very complex pieces of technology and uh, this requires a lot of manufacturing and so on. And, you know, it's like this Milton Friedman uh, pencil example. Nobody knows in the world, uh, no single person knows exactly how to build a pencil because there's so many processes involved, you know, to get uh, all the different parts and, and manufacture them and trade them across oceans and then assemble the thing together. And, you know, with something like a wind turbine or a solar cell, it's actually even more complex. And, yeah, this involves a lot of, of things, a lot of processes. And um, I, I don't fear a commodity war because I, I think China is very aware that there are other sources. I, I remember that even in Central Europe, there were some people exploring the possibility of opening up mines here once these prices shot up for rare earth metals. And uh, yeah, it's uh, one thing we can derive from that is it's always a good idea to make uh, it possible for domestic industries to, uh, you know, grow to their fullest potential. So as you mentioned, one of the big reasons in Western countries, in industrialized countries, we don't produce a lot of rare earth metals or maybe even non, I think in Australia and Canada maybe, is that the costs are very high. And that makes very little sense uh, besides local potential pollution issues because, yeah, the American ton of rare earth metals will be much, much, much cleaner than something produced in China or Africa, of course. So we, we should make uh, make sense of environmental regulations to protect, you know, local people, but we shouldn't do it to just ban entire industries that are vital to every piece of technology we use. Stefan, what's your last story? Uh, so according to estimates by Rystad Energy, uh, flaring and venting, which is the burning and releasing of natural gas in the Permian Basin, has reached record levels in the first quarter of 2019. So the Total amount of natural gas being wasted by by this is uh, projected over the entire year is about 11 billion cubic meters per year. And that's more than Romania or Israel are using as natural gas in total. And that's that's quite a lot. Of course, the, the Permian Basin and, and the, the Bakken, uh, where this has been uh, uh, recognized, are also... Uh, you know, large producers that produce a, a huge percentage of the of the uh, natural gas use globally. But uh, so my thought on this was that, yeah, we are, we are looking at something where valuable resources actually wasted. So what happens is that the oil and gas producers are producing in these areas and they have a shortage of um, infrastructure. Uh, that they face to gather the natural gas from the wells. So the report says uh, a key driver of this is persistent infrastructure challenges, a lack of enough takeaway capacity, and an unexpected outage of on a key pipeline in the area. And they also said that the largest operators in the Permian flared on average 5.1% of operated gross gas production in the fourth quarter of 2018 and the first quarter of 2019. 
So this is quite a lot. And what happens is that they are producing uh, natural gas and oil at the same time from the same wells. And the oil is more the more valuable commodity. And what happens when you d when you have a lack of infrastructure to gather that gas, you want to gather that gas, but uh, you don't stop production because, uh, you know, you can't gather all the gas or put it away in a, in a pipeline to transmit it somewhere where it's useful. And so some of that is, some percentage of that is wasted. And we have been talking before about leakage rates in, in, all in, in natural gas production, which affects the overall greenhouse gas uh, efficiency uh, of natural gas use and so on. And so my thinking is, why is there this infrastructure challenge? So, yeah, it's challenging to get enough pipeline infrastructure when you're starting new wells, but it's this oil and gas boom is now going on for like a decade, and we should actually be able to predict some growth in that. And I, I think uh, one big chunk of that is the regulatory processes are very slow and delaying things and making it very expensive to build new pipeline capacity. And there's also delays by, you know, public opposition and the green movement blocking it and, and suing things. So the most famous example is the oil pipeline. Uh, TransCanada is still trying to build Keystone XL from Canada to down to Texas. And uh, this has been going on since, I think, 2008 or 2009. And uh, so, yeah, we are blocking things. We are making things more expensive. And this, on a regulatory basis, makes no sense to have this giant burden on companies, you know, to make this uh, pipeline permission process uh, this super stringent and expensive. If the result of this is, oh, yeah, we are going to flare and, and uh, vent a lot of natural gas uh, from these production wells simply because we cannot handle it. We, we just, just this pipeline process is, uh, has a backlog that's so large. And this makes no sense because you're actually losing more natural gas. And everyone is talking about, oh yeah, leakage rates in natural gas production. Yeah, just how about this flaring and venting rate that you are producing by putting ever more stringent requirements in the permitting process of pipelines. Yeah, and of course, the, the companies are always criticized for flaring and, and venting, and they're criticized by the very same people blocking pipelines or making it much harder to produce pipelines. Right. Great. That's it for today. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me, Don Watkins, at don at industrialprogress.net. Also, if you have any interest in a speech by Alex or anyone else on the team, we've got a growing lineup of great speakers all at different price points, and you can email me about that at dawnandindustrialprogress.net. And if you're interested in help with messaging and your organization has high-stakes messaging projects that uh, you'd possibly like to be a client of ours, let me know that as well. You can subscribe to our newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com and you will gain access to our popular energy clarity email course. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed the episode. We'll be back next week with some more great topics and hopefully with Alex Epstein. For now, this is Don Watkins, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.